welcome to Knock On Podcast, where we bring you archery information and education that you can trust. Knock On was created as a way to bring all archers together, regardless of the brand you choose or the style of archery you shoot. Knock On Podcasting will deliver professional insights to the latest gear, proper shooting technique, along with high-level equipment setup and tuning. Hey everybody, welcome back to yet another long overdue podcast, but I once again apologize about that. Um, It's been a crazy few weeks, to be honest with you. Uh, I had spring break with the family. I was down in Mexico, as you know if you listen to another podcast, and um, got back and pretty much got straight to work. Had a lot of stuff waiting here for me. I've been doing an incredible amount of... uh, testing right now with different uh, veins, arrow builds, point weights, all kinds of stuff like that because I'm actually still having to do the last three episodes of this season of Knock on TV and if you're watching the show you'll know that a big part of uh, the Knocked and Ready to Rock segment for this year is the arrow build segment so I'm actually having to do a good job of actually videoing that process that I do. A lot of times I just go through that process and don't even think about it, but now it's time that I have to actually put it down on film and document a little bit of that and also try to keep it within the three-minute time frame that I've got. So uh, I've been doing that, but I guess the one thing that any of you who are following social media, following my social media anyway, uh, I'm sure you've heard that I've recently worked on Joe Rogan's bow, and this was this has been really cool for me. Um, it's not very often that I kind of decide to to pick up people's gear and actually take it in as if it was my own, but uh, I had a really really good conversation with Joe and he is extremely dedicated to archery and it just kind of uh, inspired me a little bit to to make sure what he was shooting was absolutely perfect so um, Joe and I got connected and we ended up uh, getting his bow to me and I just started really started with what he had and looked towards building an arrow that was matched perfectly for his setup. Um, So there's a video that I posted where I actually had Joe's bow that first day or two. I did a few things to it, um, did several things to it, but I kind of left it stock how it was really and uh, just got it shooting really, really good. And for, you know, it was almost shooting good enough where I really wouldn't have wanted to mess with it. However, uh, we did want to get a brand new set of strings and cables on there, uh, get a custom set on there. He he shoots a lot of arrows, um, more than what most people do, and you know that's really showing a tremendous amount of commitment and a big part of why I wanted to uh, dedicate some time to that setup as well. So the next day, um, I just completely gutted that bow and did a complete rebuild with a new set of. Uh, winner's choice strings and cables and just started back at square one built the whole thing up uh, made sure everything was good i tried three different types of arrow shafts that i had a really really good feeling about um, 
And in the end, I ended up settling with uh, an Easton full metal jacket, an original full metal jacket with uh, the three inch AAE uh, Max Stealth vein, uh, which I hope to have available on our website really soon. I've been using them for about nine months now, but I wasn't uh, 100% convinced that I really wanted to have them available and sell them. Uh, but I'm definitely convinced now I really like those uh, for the three inch option. Uh, they are more durable, a little bit more rigid than the original Plastifletch. So I really like those. But one thing that's really exciting is, and this is kind of top of my list today, um, I'm getting asked the question, and actually I've got a question right here looking at me at my screen from John Dupee, uh, and he's saying, when is Joe Rogan going to be on your podcast or you on his? It needs to happen either way. Um, so I guess I would like to go ahead and announce that uh, I am going to be going out and seeing Joe next week um so depending on when you're listening to this um you know it's the first part of april so i'm going to be going and seeing joe soon and we do plan on putting something down so uh i'm pretty sure that is going to happen and i can tell you if you want to see how awesome his bow shoots you can go to the knock on archery youtube site and i posted a few shots there with joe's bow He's shooting um he's shooting about right at around 28 inch draw length uh, and it was set at about 81 pounds when I was done with it. Cut his arrow down. I really worked on uh, working on different length arrows about an inch at a time um, from where his original arrow was, cutting them down and really seeing how those arrows were plotting um, according to how I was affecting the spine with the length of that arrow. And, you know, for those of you who are wondering about the 80 pounds, um, some people shoot 80 pounds. I've shot 80 pounds in the past. You know, obviously, if you're focusing more on big game um, and if you're able to shoot it and you're shooting consistently, then it's really not that big of a deal to shoot 80 pounds. For the person that sets their bow down and then picks it back up, once or twice a year, uh, definitely not going to be my recommendation. You know, you look at guys like Cam Haynes and Joe that are shooting 80 pounds or even, uh, not this past year, but the year before I actually was shooting an 80 pound bow because I had several elk hunts and also, um, moose hunts that I was really looking forward to. So I was shooting a little bit heavier weight too. And if you're practicing a lot, uh, you really don't even notice it. And it does give you the ability to move up to a much heavier arrow um, and still be shooting a decent speed. You know, if you're really wanting to shoot a certain grain arrow at a certain speed, then that's usually the time where you have to shoot a heavier weight in order to make that happen. You know, if you're just, if you're just worried about... Um, trying to just get speed out of a bow you can certainly do that by shooting a lighter arrow 
rather than ha- having to shoot that much weight if you can't take it. The other thing that I think is really important about this whole conversation right now regarding Joe's bow is that if you watch when I'm shooting it, you notice that I actually can still make Joe's bow, which is at least three inches shorter than my draw length. I can still make that bow appear as if it fits me. And this has kind of stumped a lot of people. Um, I got a ton of messages from everyone saying, you know, how short is Joe's bow? I thought it'd be way shorter. And, you know, how are you shooting that heavier weight with your shoulder? And the thing is, this is a perfect example of an archer's ability to really have a huge variance in their front shoulder positioning. Your front shoulder, your elbow, you have the ability with those two things to vary your draw length so much and still keep your posture erect and still keep your T formation and your draw and your anchor position the same. Now, in order to do that, I compressed my front scapula back against my spine and I also just had a slight dip in my front arm not really noticeable but the majority of that movement or variance is in my front scapula position so my whole front scapula is actually rotated back against my spine now what I'll tell you about that is if you are in that position you're kind of securing everything down and really locking everything down in that front end. And, you know, I felt incredibly stable, even with Joe's bow at at that kind of draw length. But what you'll notice if you compare how my shots are with Joe's bow versus looking at shots of me shooting, um, say, like, if you look at that uh, 300 round that I posted of me shooting... My release hand comes off the shot much different. And the reason is when you compress that front scapula back against your spine like that, you go from having the ability to pull through your shot, which is what I really coach and what I would like people to do. You go from that to then all of a sudden being an aimer where you've literally locked down that whole front end and then you actually have to be able mentally to manipulate that release until it properly fires. So when I'm shooting Joe's bow, I'm doing my best to pull with my, you know, to maintain tension and to pull. However, because my two shoulder blades are essentially pressed together in my back because I've taken up that slack with my front shoulder, when my shot fires, my front arm doesn't really have the ability to come around like it normally would when I was shooting my correct draw length. So if you notice, when I shoot, my front or my release hand almost has to come out away from my face more so than straight back and through and the other thing is I'm really not able to put my finger on that 
thumb or my thumb on that trigger the correct way and pull through activating it that way i'm actually having to continually build pressure with my thumb until i still get a surprise release i'm not punching by any means or anything related to that but what i am having to do is I'm actually having to continually build pressure manually on that release rather than doing it by pulling through the shot. So what happens with a lot of archers, you look at someone, I'm just going to throw this out there, you know, years ago when I used to practice a lot with Chris Chris White in England, um, Chris and I are about the same size, but Chris shoots a much shorter draw length than me. And the reason is his front shoulder position is kind of similar to what I'm describing right now with Joe's bow. His front shoulder position is actually compressed back. It's down. It doesn't look like it's high, but he still has perfect posture, but he's taking up that difference in the bow in his front bow arm. It's giving him the ability to probably be steadier than I am, but with Chris, he shoots, or at least he did, he shot a very light trigger, and he's shot it, and he has control enough to where he can put his finger on that trigger and just almost wait until that pressure naturally builds in his thumb for that release to go off still with a surprise shot. There's multiple ways to get to the same place there always is in life but this way is extremely accurate it is deadly however there are very very few people that have the mental capacity to do it without starting to punch the trigger that's the difference and actually when i do seminars chris is always one of my examples of people that are what I put in the category of the exception. I think that in archery, there's people like Chris that are going to be the exception. They're masters of our craft. Uh, They're tremendous archers, and they have a different way of getting to the target than what someone like myself would coach the mass amount of people. You know, it's I've I think I might have mentioned this in previous podcasts, but you know, it's like you take a golfer and you take someone you know that has a natural swing. Like for example, Tiger Woods, in his earlier career, his swing was very unique to himself, and a lot of top coaches thought that they could make him better by or make his swing more efficient by getting his swing more in line with what they saw as being correct. However, his natural swing was perfected and it worked flawlessly for him. So, you know, in those cases, you just kind of let it be. They are the exception. You know, there's there's always going to be someone in sport that has an unorthodox means of getting to the exact same place. And if you are one of those, then my hat's off to you, more power to you. But if you're like the rest of us and 
you're trying to grow in sport, you're trying to improve in archery, and you're trying to master this craft, then you you really should go with what is proven to be timeless and what literally the top coaches of generations have put in place to work the best. And that's really what I focus on whenever I talk with people is building a posture that allows that front shoulder to be down and forward so that it gives the rear shoulder the ability to have some room of motion so that so that you can pull through and as your shot activates you can bring that hand over the top of the shoulder or straight back through the directional path of that string once you have to start coming out away from your face or once you're starting to become an aimer instead of a puller, then what happens is you start to vary that pressure on the back wall of your cam and you're going to quickly lose accuracy in your shot. So I made it work and I could probably shoot it that way for a tournament or two. However, um, I wouldn't recommend it. And I know from past experience that it just doesn't work. Um, this is actually something that uh, years ago, uh, Bernie Pellerite was doing seminars. Um, I went to one and ended up messing me up for quite a while because his whole thing was trying to make people more steady. His sales pitch was putting a laser on the front of your stabilizer and being able to show you how much steadier you were once you took his class and you know the whole smoke and mirrors thing was all he would do is take your draw length and shorten it about an inch you know every single person in that class got taught to compress that front shoulder back and it it did solidify your sight picture however what happened is that you lost your ability to start to pull through a shot and if you're shooting a release, a tension-activated release, like a Carter Evolution, you're in deep crap because what's going to happen is there's going to be times where you pull back and that release might fire, but there's going to be a lot of times where you feel like you're absolutely pulling the bow in half, yet nothing's happening. And that's a perfect case of your two shoulder blades being pressed against one another straight in the center of your back because you've compressed the front, You've drawn back with the rear, and now they're both touching together. We don't want that. So I just wanted to throw that in. It, I thought it was a really good um, opportunity to, to show you guys um, just how draw length, you know, draw length is touchy and draw length is important and critical, but, you know, I can, I can crawl into any bow. Uh, but I can tell you that proper positioning for me at my height is a, just a little over 31 inches of draw. Um, you know, I'm shooting, some people ask now, they've seen me shooting the Carbon Defiant 31. So with that, I've kind of short strung it um, on the cables, uh, about a half inch, three eighths of an inch shorter cables, top and bottom. Um, and left my string just to fuzz long 
then if you pull off the wood grip you kind of get that extra length that I was looking for um, but I do think and I've shot the 31 for a few hunts now I do think I'm probably going to move into a 34 uh, for the bulk of my hunting season here um, but if you really want to shoot the right way you have to focus on being able to keep that front shoulder down and forward and another thing is when it comes to that front shoulder position I actually just had um, someone send me a video um, and just so you know I've answered a lot of questions too um, no I don't work on other people's bows I don't have I really just don't have the time to do that so there's been people throwing a lot of offers at me to work on their setups and uh, I wish I, I wish I could do that for everybody um, but I kind of just pick and choose um, who I work with on that so I apologize but um, I did see a video recently of a guy that was shooting and the one thing that I'll tell you is if you want your front shoulder in that correct position the best thing to to do so that you keep it in that position or that you get it in that position at the beginning of your shot is to really focus on keeping your front shoulder over your front foot when you draw your bow. A lot of people slowly start to hitch. They start to raise their bow hand above their shoulder or they just barely start to tip their rear shoulder down as they draw and you start to force the front shoulder up and the easiest place for it to go is up and back against that spine and you don't want that you almost want to start your shot slightly leaning into the shot so that that front shoulder is down and you want to just raise your bow hand straight up to the target and draw that release hand in line with your face you don't want to have to like lift you don't want to have to push and pull because all those are going to quickly get that front shoulder into a pretty dang weird position so um, now that i've got that one subject out of the way i want to talk about uh, several different things that i've seen here over the last week and a half that uh, i think could have some good importance and also some people that uh, I had promised I would answer some of these questions. So the first one is going to be, uh, and I don't even remember what most of these are, so they're just going to be uh, flying by the seat of my pants. Uh, the first one's Luke D, and he's saying, thanks for answering my question on the podcast. Um, getting whipped in the legs by an arrow for punching the trigger is well-deserved. Yeah, that's kind of, just so everyone knows, that's kind of my my thing. If once I, once I teach you about punching a trigger, if I see you do it, you're definitely going to take a shaft across the back of the kneecaps because uh, a lot of times it keeps people focused on not doing it again. So he sent me a video or something, obviously, of and I caught him punching the trigger, uh, which slow motion, ultra slow motion on my editing software and, and the ability to zoom tells me a lot with that. But he says, I've gotten good at preloading the trigger from your podcast and heard after I asked the question, and it ultimately led to my first 300. Oh, okay. 
Now that indoor is coming to a close, can you talk about some of the importances of prepping for outdoor season? What do you practice? What do you change in your shooting form, if anything? Okay, this is a pretty cool question because this is actually something I'm probably going to do today. Um, I kind of hate it because my hyper edge is, was shooting so ridiculously good indoors um, that I'm actually going to build a bow for myself to take out to Joe's. Um, I don't really know what I want to go with yet. I think I'm going to take a, a hyper edge. I think I'm going to break that down. So um, really the things that I focus on are going to be first, you know, you really need to know what arrow shaft you're going to go with. And this can vary depending on what you're really wanting to shoot. If you're wanting to just shoot field, if you're just wanting to have a bow to shoot long distance outside, but you're still a hunter, whether you're a 3D person, you know, this, your options on arrows just change everything. And it's, it's one of these deals where I really wish people just tried. You have to just get out there and just try this and try that and try this. And, you know, when you do that, you start to slowly build knowledge on how things react. I mean, if you try one shaft, you might you might think, well, this shoot's really good at this distance, and then all of a sudden you're shooting it at 70 yards, and there's 10-mile-an-hour wind outside, and you start realizing, wow, these things are halfway off the target compared to that other shaft. So then, you, you know, you start making those small little decisions that are critical really of matching your gear with the application. So I'm probably going to set up, um, I've got, and I guess I might as well announce this too. I'm going to, I know I announced it before. I will be in Canada. Um, really looking forward to this. Going to be in Canada at the end of May. Um, first for the oilman shoot. Uh, Shane Jensen puts on an awesome shoot up there. Um, I've got so many really, really great friends in Canada. I'm looking forward to coming up and seeing Dean and Brandon. And then, uh, you know, maybe the Rhymers, if they slip over there, it'd be super cool. And then, um, and you can look up the dates for that oilman sheet. I actually don't have it here on my phone. And then I believe it's the 28th and 29th of May for the oilman shoot. And then on the 4th and 5th, um, there's going to be a brand new shoot that Wolverine Guns um, in Red Deer, Alberta is going to be putting on. It's going to be super cool. It's at a ski resort. Um, you can actually, I'll have to, I'll have to post something about that here. I don't have the the flyer on me, but I know that the, um, in the last podcast I mentioned that date. And I can tell you that's going to be a really cool two weekends. It's going to have a lot of fun up there. And I'm going to be getting ready for those tournaments. Um, let's see here. I just found this. Yeah, so it's the Red Deer Valley shoot. It's going to be a marked 3D shoot. Um, and it's actually going to be at Canyon Ski Resort. It's going to be super cool. I'm going to give out some free lessons at both of those events. Um, I'm going to do some seminars, q and I'm literally coming to these tournaments for all of you in Canada. I'm not coming for myself. This is 100% about you guys. 
and this is going to be i haven't been up there in several years so this is a hundred percent going to be me giving back to all of you up there appreciate everyone support knock on um i'm just going to be up there i'll probably um I'll, I might shoot the full course one day, but on a, uh, I also want to be able to just kind of post myself in one position um, so that I can shoot a target or two with every single group. Um, and I'm just going to really be at the disposal of all of you up there. If you want me to give you some advice on your gear, if you want me to give you some advice on your shooting, this is literally going to be a service provided by... Um, by those two organizers so this is going to be really cool and i'm looking forward to it um but when i'm going to that event i'm probably going to gear up for since it's marked i'll probably pick a setup that's somewhat target somewhat 3d i think i'm going to probably end up going with maybe an ace arrow um or maybe even a pro field arrow possibly an x10 i'm not sure i'm not really you know the longer i've shot archery the less i've really um found there to be an importance of trying to shoot a super big diameter shaft you know i may end up going up there with fat boys but um i know i want to plan on having a few little novelty shoots at some longer distances so i kind of always like to have a slightly smaller shaft diameter um, if we're going to be dropping some bombs at a hundred plus. So, um, the first thing I do is select my arrows. Then obviously you're going to know what type of rest that you might need to change to. So for example, um, I'm shooting a trophy taker spring steel pro arrow rest right now on my indoor setup. So I've got the the wide launcher blade in order to support that, that fat shaft. So what I'll do is I'm going to change out that lizard tongue to a skinnier, you know, a standard size launcher so that it'll fit my smaller shaft. If you're shooting um, a fallaway rest, this is pretty simple because it really doesn't matter which one you shoot. All you're going to end up having to do is adjust your rest up or down if depending on the size of the shaft that you're deciding to go with. But I get my rest pretty much straightened out. I'm going to go with, uh, I'm going to go with whatever, you know, and if you have an indoor bow shooting good, then you should have your knock and loop and your peep already on your string. So when you move, you want to just move your rest up or down so that you are back to 90 degrees with your arrow, uh, with that newer arrow that you've picked. Um, from there, you know, I've just found that my peep has to get adjusted very minimally for outdoors compared to indoors because indoors I'm really focused on being super comfortable in my head position and my peep height when I'm shooting right at 20 yards and when my, my um, it, you know, my scope is kind of at the top side of my scale. Now, when I start going outdoors, if I know I'm going to be shooting at really long distances then you know I may end up finding that I've got to slightly adjust my peep just a little bit so that when my sight is all the way down at the bottom of my scale my head position is still fairly comfortable now with Joe's bow 
you know, I was actually shooting right at his peep height, which was slightly different than mine. So once I got to like, I think the last shot I was making or the last shots I was making was right at about 122 yards. I actually shot at 100. I enjoyed shooting that so much there. I actually shot at that distance for about 20 minutes um, at this mule deer target. And really, I only made one shot that wouldn't have been a kill shot. Uh, they weren't all in the 10 ring. They were. I'm certain they were all in the 8 ring, um, except for the one. But, you know, the, the string was kind of just off the tip of my nose in order to look properly through the peep sight at that distance um but you kind of need to pick where your distances are going to be you know if you know your sight needs to be way down at the bottom of that scale because say you're say you're a shooter that really focuses on 70 and 90 meters then you kind of need to adjust your peep height to where you can feel comfortable right at that that particular distance um and from there it's a matter of picking your sight aperture um, if you're a 3d shooter, you know, a lot of the 3d shooters, when they're shooting indoor tournaments, they normally shoot the same exact type of pin in their scope. Um, for me, I always shot a higher power scope inside. So like for Vegas or, in, you know, indoor nationals or, or, you know, feet nationals or something. Um, I always shot a six power lens and a slightly bigger dot, I would kind of cover a little bit more of that 10 ring. Now for 3d, if I go outdoors and I'm shooting 3d, I like a fiber pin. I, I really like shooting, um, green or red, one of those two colors, what I prefer, but I'll probably shoot a small fiber optic pin and I'll go back down to a three or maybe a four power lens. Um, depending on if you're a 3D shooter, you know, a lot of times I recognize where I was going to be traveling to. If I was traveling to a tournament where they were kind of noted to have a very thick canopy in the timber, and a lot of the shots were like cut through the timber to where they were tunneled, and you knew you'd be getting faced with a lot of dark. Uh, target presentations in those cases I would go with like a two power lens uh, simply because I wanted to always be able to see the full silhouette of that animal um, it gets really tricky if you're zooming in too much on that animal's kill zone with very dark uh, lighting you know you start to kind of lose where you're at so I always go with maybe just a two power lens, sometimes three. If I have really good light and I know it's going to be outside in the open, I'll go with the four. Uh, if I'm just shooting 3D, I'll pick a fiber optic. I like an up pin personally. Um, otherwise, if I'm just going to be shooting targets, uh, playing around and plunking around, then what I really love to do is uh, shoot a four power lens with a black dot that's the exact size of the 10 ring or the spot that I'm aiming at. Um, and then what I do is I'll take a needle, I'll dip it into some hobby paint, and then I'll take that needle with the hobby paint and I'll make one little white drop right in the center of my black dot. I'll go ahead and let that dry. Make sure that you're 
that your little drop is perfectly in the center of your black dot. I'll let it dry and then I'll stick that on my lens. And that is my favorite uh, sight uh, pin for shooting target because what's really cool about it is if you have light coming at you from the front, then the dot appears to be black. You really, it's just a black dot. And if you have light coming in your face, it's nice to have a black dot on any type of target face. Now, if you have rear light, um, which gets tricky a lot of times, when rear light casts on you, uh, with, you know, especially with stuck on dots, the, your focal kind of tends to change. However, by having that little white dot in the center with that rear dot, the first thing your eye sees is the white dot in the center. It really pops. It illuminates that white. So you don't lose the fine edges of that black. You literally go from having the ability to aim with that black solid dot to then being able to almost micro aim with the set with that little fine white dot it works really really good um so i'll choose the site that i want and from there everything pretty much stays the same now on my aero builds the one thing i didn't talk about was if i go from indoor to outdoor i will most likely change veins because indoors um, i'm shooting a big arrow that i want to stabilize really fast so i'm shooting a bigger longer fletch uh, once i go outside you know it's all about drag um, for me it's about you know drag and and really efficiency I, I really like my arrow to maintain speed as best as possible i just feel that um, through all my years of shooting the faster an arrow starts to decelerate, the more it loses control um, at those longer distances. And that's why, you know, back when like NAP made the quick spin veins, you know, everybody jumped on those really fast. Uh, they work they work awesome for mid-distance and less. You know, they spin an arrow really fast, they stabilize it really fast. However, once you start to get past a certain distance, which I'm kind of wanting to remember, I found that right at, after about 66 yards, that that ruddered vein just started. It was spinning so fast that it was also creating more drag on the arrow uh, because of that little fin. And it just they started to parachute they started to slow down and the groups just started to open up bigger and bigger and bigger at those longer distances whereas if i took the exact same arrow put on a vein exactly the same but without the rudder you got a completely different result so i'm probably going to go with i'm probably going to go with maybe that really low profile 2.0 shield cut vein um if I if I go with like an X10 or an ACE or a Pro Field, if I go with an ACC or a Fat Boy, I'm gonna go with a Pro Max vein, uh, probably three Fletch. Um, those would kind of be my two go-to veins. So that would really be it. My release is gonna stay the same. Um, you know, I'd like to stay the same there. The other, well, I guess the last thing is. 
Um, I probably would shoot a slightly bigger peep outdoors um, just because I do like to be able to gather light. Um, if I'm shooting on a target field, I can probably shoot the same exact peep size as what I shot indoors uh, because you're obviously out in the open. You, you're getting a lot of light casts on you. Um, if you're going to be in a 3D situation where you're going to have changing shadows and stuff, a lot of times I like to have just slightly bigger peep. So after I do that, it's just a matter of getting used to shooting at those longer distances again. You know, I'm a firm believer in stretching it out there. You know, if you want to have a coach in your backyard, well, I guess technically it's not really a coach, uh, but it is a magnifying glass. If you want to be able to critique, then all you need to do is go further back the further back you go, the more you start to magnify your mistakes. You know, it starts to get really, really apparent. And the other thing I recommend to all of you out there is, you know, I really like to, um, I really like to start my day with fresh paper because then I get to really see at the end of the day how I shot. You know, one of my, it's, it's kind of a weird. Uh, thing that I've got. I actually really don't like shooting targets where there's not holes in the middle. Um, it just, <laughs> I don't know why it just, it's, it just makes me feel like, I don't know. It, to me, a target face is literally, it's a imprint. It's a picture of a result. And when I go to clubs and I have to shoot on target faces that it, look like someone just stood there with buckshot and shot at it for a little while. Um, I just don't feel like I can really critique how I've been shooting all day um, looking at that. You know, I really like to have targets that um, are somewhat fresh. So, you know, smart investments, just buy some fresh targets, take a target face out. If you're going to have a long day of practice, put up a new target face once you've sighted in and you know, hey, I'm going to sit here and I'm going to put some reps in. And then at the end of the day, you have a perfect, you have a perfect like feedback right in front of you of how well you've done. That's what I've really liked about target archery versus 3D archery is, you know, I, when I've shot really, really good, I've been able to bring those home with me. I mean, here in my office, I've got, um, you know, I've, I've literally got the three best faces that I've shot in tournaments. You know, one one Vegas face, one NFA uh, five-spot face, and then one FIDA face. Um, you know, I've got them all in here. And I've got tons of them that I've saved over the years. Um, you know, it's sometimes really fun for your self-image to be able to look back through those and see see the times where you shot really, really well. Um, so don't be afraid to make an investment and buy some targets, put up a new target face. Once you know, you've got a good sight mark and go ahead and shoot. It'll, it'll show you where your bads go. You'll start to actually build a pattern on yourself. You'll start to see, well, towards the end there, I got tired and look, every single arrow is to the bottom, right? Every single arrow. And I mean, you start to, you know, then at least you can ask why, well, why am I to the bottom to the right? Well, 
you know, I'm literally dropping my hand and dropping my bow, you know, or I'm not pulling through my shot. I'm coming away from my face and it's just going to send them all there. You know, it gives you immediate feedback. All right. So the next question, hope that I answered your question, Luke. Next question here is going to be from Mark. Uh, Mark's like, hey, Dad, love the show. Have a question when you get time. Is there a chart or list of center serving diameters um, suggested suggestions for different knocks, um, you know, I, I build my own strings, and if I could use it, use my mic to get a diameter, um, then it would be a lot easier. So, the question or the answer for this mark is: there's really there's there's not really a set serving diameter. So many knocks now are so different; um, it kind of sucks. You mentioned in here. Um, that you're going to shoot biter knocks, um, so you know what you know what sir, and you want to know what serving to use in advance. So what's really cool about biters is, and that's why a lot of shooters shot the biter knocks over the years, was just because you had the ability to either buy a number one, two, or three uh, to kind of try to see what fit your serving the best. Um, honestly, I don't really know what the what the most standard size is because especially with me a lot of the lighted knocks that i like to shoot um you know they are slightly different in how they feel because not necessarily how they snap on but because of them like i'm shooting a nocturnal knock and they have a little plunger on the inside so that string presses that plunger it slightly changes how that knock actually feels on the string because the throat is deeper not necessarily wider <coughs> so you know i really like to just when i order my strings and cables which i'll just call winner's choice and i'll just tell them straight up hey i need to shoot i want to order my set of strings and cables i really plan on shooting a hunter knock by biter or you know hey i'm going to be shooting uh, nocturnal knocks on this setup or I might just say hey I'm going to be shooting you know a really small pin knock um, on an x10 so you have to really vary you know it varies some of the, you know my bows that I'm shooting for hunting I have a slightly different serving uh, than what I have on you know the bow that I'm shooting for my indoor um, the main thing is BCY does make different serving diameters. You know, they make so many different ones. Um, I'm for center servings. I personally prefer like a, a BCY 62 XS braid. Um, typically you're going to be serving, uh, with like a 20, a 0.2021. Um, and then what I do, since you're building your own strings, what I do is when I start my build or when I start my serving on the string, I'll have that tail pulled through and I'll start to do my serve and I'll serve it for about two inches. And then what I'll do is, um, and I always start, you know, on the bottom, lower on the string and then serve up. So as I serve that two inches, I'll then take an arrow and I'll check that fit. If the fit's perfect, then I'll keep a hold of that tail all the way until I serve um, past where I'm going to be clipping my my uh, arrow on the string. Now, if it feels like it's really tight, then what I'll do is I'll fold that 
um, tail back and keep serving and I'll serve about another two inches and then I'll check that fit again and what you'll find is sometimes you may need a tail and sometimes you may not now if you um, if you serve it that first two inches with the tail under and you put your knock on there and it feels like it's really too loose then you might as well just just go ahead and cut it unwind that two inches and then just go up to a you know go up to the next size get a two three or two five and do the same thing serve about two inches with the tail under check the fit it'll probably fit really tight so then fold that tail back you know continue serving a few inches so that you don't have a tail underneath that serving and then check that fit that's pretty much what I've always done and uh, I can get my serving bang on to how I like it to feel uh, let's see I got a question here I don't know who it's from I know it was from Instagram hey Dud, thanks again for everything you do uh, the hundred yard bombs are awesome had a question about what your tuning process is <coughs> I've had I've heard you talk about each step in detail um, However, I haven't really been able to put them all together in order um, and how you do it. Paper, hill tuning, walk back tuning. Um, and when you begin the tuning process on a new setup, what order are you going to do those in? So I'm going to have a sip of my cold, cold, cold coffee here. My office is like a freaking freezer. I don't know what it is about this room in the house, but I swear you could hang meat in this dang place. Um, I mean, I have to have a coffee freaking warmer, like a little thing that I plug in the wall just to set my cup on, just so the damn thing doesn't freeze. But anyway, um, so like with Joe's bow, my process was um, obviously pick the bow or the arrow that I like. Um, got my bow all built. Pretty much put a rest on there. Uh, eyeballed my rest. I like trophy taker rests. I love the SmackDown rests. Um, I can just tell you they've worked so good for me. So I don't really know what to say about that. There's a ton of them out there, but it's worked great. Um, I like the limb-driven style rests a lot because you can actually take the cable off of it while you're working on it. And then the rest is all the way up. So I'll set my knock at 90 degrees. I'll set my center shot to where it looks like I'm running right down the pipe of the bow uh, to start with. And then really my first assessment is going to be through paper. Uh, with Joe's bow, I literally took three different arrows, shot three through paper. Um, for his, it was a, literally the first shot. Uh, bullet hole, bullet hole, bullet hole. Um for me, is paper everything? Definitely not. You know, paper is a starting point. For me, paper shows me, it identifies clearance. Um, and I've actually got this question later. I know I saw it. Um, so I guess maybe I'll just talk, I'll talk about it now anyway. And then when I get to it, um, when I get to it, I'll just, we'll know we've already answered it, but with a lot of these new bows where they have either flexible cable rods or you have the ability to move your cable rod in fairly close, um, also a lot of the bows now that have a lot of 
flex at full draw. This is kind of becoming a problem. I don't want to mention any brands, but I can just tell you that, you know, I've been working with a ton of students lately on teams, national teams. I'm starting to see a lot more, uh, starting to see a lot of different models show up in teams. Uh, you know, whereas 10 years ago, it just seemed like every team was pretty much consistent with shooting one style of bow or one type of bow. Um, now it's just there's so many individuals. I'm seeing a lot of different models. And some of the bows out there have, they're pretty wobbly at full draw. They have they have the ability to torque. Um, and what happens is if you have a bow that when you pull it back and your front stabilizer swings way off to the right, if you're a right-handed shooter, you know, that's showing you riser flex. And if the riser is flexing like that, it also means if your stabilizer is going off to the right, it also means your cable rod is now going to the left, which brings it in closer to your arrow shaft. And some people that are shooting these short, high-profile veins, they're having contact issues uh, either on like the mainly on those cables or the you know the rods i've heard of a few people having some contact issues on um the actual inside of the riser but you know if you're contacting that much i would probably say it's more in your hand position but i've found that and you and as long as you're shooting a fall away rest you can do this um, if you're shooting like a launcher style rest where the where the prongs are always up, you're not able to do this. But what I found, and this was um, something that I even did with Joe's bow, is um, I actually went back to shooting with my cock vein out. Um, I found that with this cock vein out, I've got a lot more um, ability to have clearance down the inside of the riser. And if I do intentionally put any torque in there you know right now i don't see an impact from it whereas if i'm shooting my cock vein straight up what that does is um your bottom two veins will then be almost pointing uh you know at a wider point by shooting your cock vein out you're actually giving yourself more inside clearance so um, this is going to be really important. You need to make sure, one, that you line them up to where you have good clearance. And that's really why I shoot through paper. Because if I'm not getting clearance either on a rest or, you know, or a vein is contacting a cable or something like that, you'll see it because what it'll do is it's going to give you a tear through paper to where even when you move your arrow rest slightly left or slightly right, the tear does not change. You know, if you're moving your rest around and the tear stays the exact same, that's telling you immediately that there's contact, whether it's your personal contact with the string um, or your fletching or the back of your arrow or facial pressure on the knock or whether it's contacting something as it goes through the bow. Um, the other thing, too, is when it comes to up and down tears, you know, if you start having to move your rest too far up or too far down in order to correct a tear, or if you're just not getting rid of a high-low tear, it's an immediate reflection on spine. Um, so if you're tearing low all the time, it's showing you that that arrow is 
is essentially on the stiff side. Whereas if you're always tearing high, um, that with an arrow rest, that's going to tell you two things. One, it's either going to tell you that your spine's too weak, or it's going to tell you that you're actually, if you're shooting like some fall away rests, either they, there's times where they don't go down. You know, there's some very popular rests on the market right now. And I know it from, you know, I sit here and work on bows all the time. Um, I've seen rests that don't actually trip and go down. So they stay up so that sometimes you just get that arrow come through. And when it contacts, it rips a high tear through paper. Um, if you're shooting a target setup where you have a, um, a lizard tongue, I've seen a ton of bows where if that lizard tongue is set on too steep of an angle or if the launcher blade is actually too stiff for the tension that you have on it, um, like a lot of people just throw a 12,000s blade on there because it's easy. Um, a 12,000s blade with a lighter arrow, it's just not going to flex enough. It's almost going to flex enough on the very beginning of the shot to start it to bend, but then it like pops up and it like ding kind of does that noise. And when it does, when it pops up, it then will contact the back of that arrow and almost bump it, like bump it up. Um, I did a slow motion video um, of like one of my launcher blades that was set perfectly and I forget what it was I think it was like when I when I shot through and my arrow rode that launcher blade all the way through and then left uh, left the rest my that little bitty lizard tongue then flexed like kind of moved up and down like 52 times before it finally settled so it's already moving. You want it to be able you want it to be able to flex enough to where when that arrow is driving down on that launcher blade, you want it to ride that blade out and then until it until your fletching is clear. Then you want it to then be coming up and, and doing its thing. You know, you don't want to just like barely bend it just at the initial shot and then have it popping up and hitting the back of your shaft. Um, you know, you don't want your shaft coming off of that rest, you know, with the tail high. So, you know, that paper immediately tells me that. Do I have a high tear? Yes. Okay. Um, I'm going to, tr first thing I'll try is a stiffer arrow. Just put a stiffer arrow in there or back your bow poundage down. Shoot it through again. If the tear gets better, then you know it's related to spine. If the tear stays exactly the same, then you know, well, crap, I'm getting some type of a contact with this arrow and it's actually coming up off that rest and it's tearing through paper the same each and every time. So that's what paper tells me. The next thing is... I'll go outside and I'll just go ahead and kind of jump right in to my hill method, um, which is the horizontal impact line. Um, and this is something that, you know, I'll go to a distance that I'm comfortable with. Uh, with Joe's bow, I just went right to 80 yards and I started shooting groups. I was shooting groups of three arrows at a time because at that point I hadn't really decided of 
what particular arrow shaft I really wanted to go with for him. Um, so I shot groups at 80 yards just plotting um, how my arrows were for left to right. And then what I did was um, I actually had three different spine arrows made. Um, if you don't have the ability to have that many arrow options, then what you could do is you can change your poundage on your bow at least three pounds, and it'll almost give you um, the same result as if you were to change one spine in your arrow. So then I'll shoot, and I'll kind of check to see which spine is matching best for the bow because... Honestly, to do the walkback tuning first, um, you can start to give yourself a lot of uh, false positives. If the spine isn't matching the bow, then it's going to quickly tell you in the bow's ability to group. If it's spraying this big horizontal line left to right, it's showing you that that arrow is either too weak or too stiff. The other thing is, when you do this, you'll also notice that as you change spine in relation to your bow, um, you'll also notice that the better your spine matches your bow, the closer your pin should be to your arrow shaft when you're like looking down the string. You put your string right down the line of the arrow and then you look up at where your pins are. You start to have a shaft that's like way too weak or even you know, too stiff, you'll start to find that your your sight pin is starts to get way left of that arrow. Now you have to be careful on this because if you're shooting a bow that naturally flexes at full draw like we talked about, then you can get a false reading on that as well. Um, if you're shooting a bow that bends a lot at full draw, then your pins are naturally going to have to be further left of that arrow when the bow's at rest because as you draw back and that bow flexes, those arrows or those pins will then come over the top of that arrow. So you kind of need to know that. But the main thing is if one spine arrow allows your sight to be in one position for left and right and then all of a sudden you change to that different spine and then you're having to move your sight out even further away from the bow then that's telling you that your spine is kind of going away from where you want it to be ideally i like my whole alignment to be right down the pipe string to be down the center of the riser arrow to be down the center of the string and then like with Joe's bow, his pins are sitting just on the left edge of um, the arrow shaft. Now, when I tried a 330 spine arrow with his setup, um, the, the sight pins actually had to be probably, I don't know, I would say... I would say a full turn, maybe a turn and a half outside uh, <clears throat> outside of his arrow shaft. So... I knew right away with that that this arrow has a better smide match simply because the alignment, left to right alignment, was coming together. Okay, so once I've decided what arrow and poundage coincide the best, then I'll go to a walkback tune, which it, at that point is take your bow, sight it in at like three yards, three to four yards, um, 
for most people, that's going to be their 50-yard pin. Um, then go back to 50 yards. And when I'm talking about sighted in, I mean like where it's shooting in a freaking arrow hole. Like go up, stab an arrow hole in paper, and you're at three yards, make a shot, and ha- and adjust your sight so that your arrow is literally going in that arrow hole. Then step back to 50 yards. And again, you want to do this. Um, you really need to do this on flat ground and you need to do it on a very calm day. Um, so then you go back to 50 yards and you just shoot a group. Don't move your sight. Just shoot a group. If the first arrow is off target, it doesn't matter. Just shoot a full group. And then when you go down there, look at where that group has plotted on the target. If that whole group is left of the spot, then what that's telling you is as those arrows continually go further and further and further away from the bow, they're also continually going further and further and further left. So then what I would do is I would slightly, very slightly adjust the rest opposite of the direction of those arrows. So I might just have to go in just a little bit. And then what I'll do is I'll go back up to the short distance and then move my sight because you're wanting to sight in again since you just moved your rest. So I'll adjust my sight to where I'm shooting in an arrow hole again at that close distance. Then I'll go back and shoot again to see how my left to right impacts are at ground zero and then also at 50. So if you do that, um, as long as your arrow flight is still looking really clean, you're set. Now, if you um, if you go inside, you can always kind of reconfirm that and shoot through paper again. Now, there's been times where, you know, paper is a funny thing. Some of the best shooting bows I've ever had in my life did not shoot a perfectly clean bullet hole. They had a slight tear as they came out of the bow, but they quickly stabilized and put together the best groups I've ever seen. And I was totally fine with that. You know, again, um, shooting through paper a lot of times helps me identify contact issues and gets me at a starting point with my setup it's not a final point i would say my you know i would say the vision of my arrow flight and also the results of that hill and the results of the walk back are pretty much what i put all my money into those are really the things that are most important um and if you do it like that if it works now if you find that you're having you know, say you're shooting and again, your arrows are like way left. Um, you know, you're shooting, you're sighted in at zero, then you shoot and your arrows are way left. You know, you need to make sure that your bubble is set correctly. You need to make sure you're on flat ground. Um, all that stuff's important. Now, the other thing too is if you cannot get a good tear through paper, no matter what you do, a lot of times that's that's a result of just improper anchoring and facial pressure. Um, I don't know how many times I'll grab someone's bow. I can just sit there and shoot bullet holes with it, and then they get it, and it rips a huge tear through paper. It just shows you that your grip position, your anchor position, how much facial pressure you have, all that starts to affect things really, really fast. 
Um, okay, let's see here. I've got a, another question. I've got several questions here. Might as well keep going. Podcast is probably going to break a new record. I guess Joe's rubbing off on me. Um, I guess I better build up my bladder too if we end up doing one of his podcasts. You know, three minute thing. I'm gonna have to make sure I got the marathon bladder rocking for that. Um, okay, so John, I've got a bit of a long one for you today. Okay, well, at least we're prepared. Uh, I think my dad has target panic. Okay, he's got an obsession evolution. Fifty five to sixty five pounds, set at sixty maybe. Running a limb driver drop away, five pin lethal weapon with retina lock, and a bone collector beast to trigger. Okay. He's had a bow for a while, but he hasn't hasn't set the retina because he's shooting so inconsistently. I was wondering if you had any suggestions, attempts to to remedy this. Um let's see. Well, the deal is, I guess we've, I was kind of wanting to hear a little bit more about the target panic. Um, the deal is so many people right now are just, you know, they go into a shop, they buy a release. Most likely it's going to be, you know, a wrist strap or something. And, you know, they kind of just get them sighted in at 20 yards and, People just kind of learn to go out in the backyard, look through the peep site, put their pin on a target, and just hit the release. Um, For a lot of people, it's good enough. You know, if it gets to the point where you feel like you're super inconsistent, um, honestly, that is the point of that retina lock. I mean, if he's had the bow for a while, but he hasn't set the retina lock because he's inconsistent, then that's kind of a ass-backwards way to do it. Um, the point of that retina lock is to show you what you are doing wrong. It's, it's an identifier. It identifies what you're messing up. If you're inconsistent, I mean, it's one thing if he's got target panic and he's just hitting the trigger when his pin, when his pin isn't on the target. It's another thing if he's totally changing his grip position each and every shot. You know, you need to at least try to have him pull back and hold still enough to identify where that retina lock is and go ahead and get that thing set in the correct position. And then have him shoot and see how the consistency is. <clears throat> if he's aligning that each and every time and all of a sudden his groups are getting way better, then that's awesome. Now, if you're sitting there watching him freeze his pin beneath the target and then slam the trigger, now that's a totally different situation itself. You know, at that point, he's really going to have to to get into some type of a program if he wants to that gets him away from panic. My concern is this, target panic, you know, it's pretty much, it's a form of, it's an anxiety, you know, it's, it's a sudden fear of something. It's, you know, in, in my opinion, it's almost like an addiction, you know, it's like a freaking drug. Um, people can't crack it. And, and the number one reason is because most people aren't willing to. Um, you know, I, I always, I've written several target panic articles and, you know, 
I always say the first step is to identify the problem. You know, can you at least admit that you're doing it? And are you ready to fix it? You know, that's one thing that I really appreciate about Joe. And it's getting harder and harder and harder to find this in students. And that's when you identify something wrong. You actually do something about it. Once you've identified a problem and you're 100% committed to getting rid of it, it's understandable if you punch the trigger again accidentally. I mean, it's going to happen. But being at the point where you truly get frustrated with yourself and you don't accept that anymore, that's a different thing. The fact that you're having to send this instead of him asking me, I don't know. I could be wrong, but for me, it kind of stands out as um, maybe he's not ready to fix it yet. You know, it's kind of a bummer to say that, but it's true. Maybe he's not ready to fix it yet. Maybe that's why um, he's just kind of doing it the way he's doing. I can tell you, first thing you guys should do <clears throat> is get out there, set that retina lock up, and then from there, just watch him. You know, watch to see if he's just pounding the trigger, if he's actually doing some aiming. And if he is punching the trigger, then just sit there and tell him that you want to watch him and just say, you know, really try to do your best to get your finger around that trigger and slowly pull it instead of, you know, actually activating it by punching it. Um, see, next question here is from Tyler uh, on Instagram. Just want to take a minute tell you how much I love the podcast. It has been a wealth of youthful information. I just have one quick question for you. I've struggled with target panic. Here we go. For several years, no matter what I did, I never could fully cure it. I took your advice and ordered me a Carter Evolution. That a boy, that a boy. This release has changed my shooting forever. Yes. I'm shooting better now than I ever have. The only problem I have with it is carrying it around. While I'm hunting, I do a lot of running and gunning for elk and mule deer. I generally just put it in my front pants pocket. The problem is I'm constantly worried about losing it. So my question is, do you have a good way of attaching some sort of wrist strap on an evolution? So it is constantly attached to me. Um, I don't have that. However, I can tell you that if you've watched me hunt, you'll notice that I actually have, I like to have a release pouch right on my hip. Um, I actually found one when I was at the Badlands factory. They had a little magnetic pouch that actually had a, like a lanyard that went all the way around it. I was, I believe it was for something to do with something to do with their four-wheeler stuff. Um, and I grabbed that thing because I love the fact that it had that little magnetic opening on it. It had a little tab that you can hold. You can open it. It's like if you've seen their magnetic binocular pouches, it's literally a miniature version of that, but it had two buckles to where it had this long strap, almost like long enough to be a necklace. So I actually just cut that part off and then just used just the pouch through my belt loop and it worked awesome. 
Um, I don't know if they still have that. You can look for that. Otherwise, just finding a normal release pouch, having that on your hip is really, really helpful. Um, I really like to keep my release in my chest pocket on my vest as well. I really like having vests. Um, I like to have an external vest that I wear on the outside of my hunting gear all the time. So I really like having that, you know, that upper chest pocket, which I think a lot of people, it's more of a, it's probably more of an iPhone, uh, pocket, but you know, honestly I put my release in there and it's a great spot. Um, I'm not really sure. I'm not really sure if there's any safe place to like drill through. Matter of fact, I yeah, don't drill through on it. Um, some of the Carter releases have the ability to have a little lanyard on there, which some people like. I've always hated them, so I took them off. Um, but you know, you can you can also get. And I'm trying to think what the name of the guy was that did it for me. I found a guy that used that um, plastic molding that they used to build like a, a tactical holder for pistols. It's like that uh, black plastic that kind of flexes. Um, I found a guy that actually somehow he took that and he would actually take like a Carter release and he would heat this stuff up and he would like kind of bend his fingers around it so that the release actually snapped down into this little holder and you could put it on your belt. It was slick as heck, but I haven't talked to that guy for a long time. So if you're that guy and you're listening to this podcast, you should probably uh, probably send me a message because that thing was pretty dang slick and that would have worked good. <clears throat> Let's see. Next question here is going to be from Jay Wheel. Um, well, it's got a few questions. When it when at the target downrange, is there any relevance in cock vein position of a group of arrows? I sometimes notice a majority pointing one way and maybe a couple pointing another way. Okay. Well, arrows are going to, you know, rotation is rotation, right? Depending on the offset depending on the helical depending on the type of fletch a lot goes into it but how much an arrow actually rotates um ideally you want to have pretty good consistency you know you want you want your arrows pretty much rotating at the exact same speed now this is also why um i really I always build my arrows on the same exact jigs. Um, you know, I can't like call someone and order arrows because my jigs are set up at an angle that I really like. And once I have that, I don't want to have to build another three or four arrows for so that I have a solid dozen to go hunting with and have to worry about there being even a half degree difference in that offset because that will change the rotation and the further and further that arrow goes the more that rotation comes into play um main thing is try to make sure all of your arrows you know are the same you know if you have um you know if you have 
arrows that are like a pre-fletched arrow, then make sure when you go to your shop, you really take note and make sure that shop is refleshing your arrows with the same degree of offset. You know, it, otherwise you're going to have what you're talking about. You're going to have some arrows that might, you know, and you'll. I can tell you that at the longer distances, those bigger um, offsets and the bigger helicals, they will slow down faster. They will start hitting lower out of that group. Um, so you just really want to make sure that they're all the same. Um, next question you had was, um, <clears throat> any tips and tricks for folks looking to dip their bows? I've always been skeptical about it, but I've heard about positive outcomes. So I'm going to throw a name at you right now. Let me even see if I got it. Um, look at my phone. Let's see. Nope. That's, I don't know where where you are, but um, there's there's a guy up in Wisconsin. Um, I used to be really good friends with him. He started. He's got a dipping company up there. Does a lot of custom dipping. Um, his name's Randy. Let's see. Um, trying to look it up here see if I can find it but I don't think I can I don't really dang well sorry sorry I don't actually prepare before the podcast starts so um, and while I'm thinking about it I've, I've actually been meaning to say this um, I've like came across so many truckers that say they listen to the podcast and uh, they just you know, love having something to listen to when they're driving, man, I can't thank all of you truck drivers out there enough. You guys do. I mean, I can just tell you, I couldn't be a truck driver. Uh, I would kill someone on the first day. Probably. I, there's just no way I could put on that many miles and stay awake. Um, you guys are awesome. I mean, kind of sucks. I mean, they make you guys wait around all the time now. nowadays. You know, you've got so many limitations on your travel, uh, a lot of time away from the family. So my hat's off to all you guys. Appreciate the hard work. Um, but let's see. His, his name was Randy Hoff, and he's up there somewhere north of La Crosse, Wisconsin. So I don't know if you can look into that, everybody, but... Um, just tell Randy John sent you. He's dipped a bunch of stuff for me. Um, I'm into dipping. It's cool. You just have to be careful of, uh, like, say on a Carter release, if you dip it, you don't want dip on the inside where there's where there's parts that actually have to function. Um, same thing on the riser. Obviously, you have to be smart enough to know how to pull everything apart and put it back together. Uh, the one thing that I'll tell you is, you know, if you've got a brand new bow and you send away and dip it, um, a lot of times you're probably not going to be able to warranty that riser anymore. I would assume that you're kind of chucking your riser warranty out the window um, once you alter it technically. So there's not going to be a risk at, uh, you ask if there's a risk uh, to performance or compromising the integrity of the bow. 
No, definitely not. Um, you just have to make sure, you know, you start getting too thick a film on things, uh, little spots like limb pocket uh, connections and things like that are going to get a lot tighter. Uh, but other than that, you should be good to go. Um, you know, I custom dipped, um, well, I custom dipped my bike, um, my felt outfitter. Uh, they custom dipped that for me in, uh, in a Ridge Reaper pattern. And uh, it performs flawlessly. And I've done several, I had to do the same thing with my Ridge Reaper bow last year. Obviously, it wasn't on the, that pattern wasn't on the marker, uh, market yet. So it was a custom uh, color custom film dip so uh no problems for me whatsoever it's what they put on them anyway uh next question here is from chase uh hey john i've always had a dream of starting my own tv show i'm glad i got this one um was just wondering how to get started what would be my first step and what kind of equipment would i need for filming okay this is actually a question that i'm kind of excited to answer because um man i get bombarded with how do i start a show how do i become a pro so you know this formula is really simple you know it if you have a ton of money you can have a show um if you want to if you want to make an imprint in the industry, then you need to have integrity and you need to work your way up through the system. I mean, you can buy anything. You can you can pay the money and you can go become a pro. You know, you can pay the money, you can jump into the pro class, you can shoot as a pro, you can you know, you can pay the money, you can go get on the TV network. Um but there's a difference between doing that and actually becoming a pro or becoming a TV show personality, in my opinion. Um, I just really feel that integrity is something that continually starts to slip in our industry. You know, people just bounce around company to company to company more and more and more. Um, I've got to where I am in life and I'm just going to say this is the way you need to do it because I just think it is the way and the relationships that I've had are long lasting. I see people in this industry, I see TV shows, I see pros, I see them come and go every day. Um, Companies that I work with, marketing budgets that I manage, just people come and people go and you know, there's a saying at the ATA show, uh, manufacturers ask whether or not certain people have the, the pro handshake. And the pro handshake is when you come up and your hands out with it upside down because you want something. You know, it gets old, honestly. Um, we got to start policing ourselves. Um, you know... The bottom line is, if you want to have value to anybody, whether it's the people that you work for, whether it's you know your friends, or obviously whether it's a new business adventure, um, you have to have value. And value is going to be a two-way street. I mean, it's going to be a matter of you are going to work your ass off to provide 
for someone else, and then they are then in turn going to reward you for what you're doing. You know, I try to, I pick and choose the people I work with. There's certainly people that I work with or that have come to me that want me to promote a product that I honestly cannot stand by. I can't say that it's good, so I don't take money from them. And there's actually a product that I think I'm going to mention later because I I saw a question on it when I was copying and pasting um, kind of on this topic. But I started... By going into an archery shop, literally leaving everything I had, walking into an archery shop and working for $4 an hour. And that was after I had gone into an archery shop and didn't get paid for the first two months I was there. You know, they literally, I sat behind the counter, learned how to build arrows and just was sitting there doing it for hopes that if I worked hard enough... I would get offered a paid position there. And then when I was offered the paid position at $4.10 an hour, that's what I started doing. And the lifeblood to our industry is archery shops. It's the pro shops. <coughs> it's the top quality shops. Like, you know, I've talked about Joe's bow, so I'm just going to, you know, like Wayne Entcott. Um, you know, he's got an awesome shop, the bow rack, you know, you, you find a shop like that to where you can go in there, you can get knowledge, you can learn about archery, you can build loyalty with the person that has the most value to the manufacturers. You know, I can tell you right now that if you ask Hoyt, um, who's more important me or their dealers they're going to tell you the dealer they should that is who's more important um (coughs) because i made that sacrifice and i worked with that shop that shop then helped me build my relationships with the manufacturers so you know just last week i realized it had been 20 years that i've been with easton 20 years ago, I met my Easton rep, or my Easton guy at the time, was with Beeman, 20 years ago, I met him, coming into an archery shop with a suitcase full of arrows to show us some of the new stuff. I met him, he knows I'm behind the counter, he knows I impact people, you know, kind of says, hey, you want to take a few of these arrows, see how you like them? Yep, I did that, and then here we are, you know, it's 20 years later, I'm still with the same brand, because one, I love the brand, I mean, the brands I picked, I like them, and I believe in them, I want to shoot them, I would buy them if I, if I didn't get them for free, um, but, you know, I just build on those blocks, you know, you build on those blocks, you know, you might start to have to go to a deer classic with the show, and, you know, or with your shop and you set up at the deer classic, you might have to sacrifice a week or two. And then next thing you know, you find, you know, that rep maybe comes to the shop and says, Hey, I'd really like to offer like kind of one of my personal, uh, sponsor spots to, you know, to John there behind the counter. I really like them. And, 
you know, I get a couple bows that are allocated to me personally as a rep, and I wouldn't mind having John. Next thing you know, you know, to go, you go start working for your local rep and helping him out at events and different stores that he needs help with. And then you just start to climb that ladder. You climb that ladder, you build up. You know, I know that um, I've shot Sherlock right now. I've shot Sherlock for, I think, 19 years. Maybe it's 18, maybe it's 18 years. Um, <laughs> I still remember um, Steve Gibbs asked me so many times whether I would shoot a Sherlock sight. And I just told him, I said, well, I'm not going to shoot a sight if I have to pay for it. And I was a pro. It was kind of the wrong thing to say. And Steve had a very clear rule. It was he never gave someone their their first sights. So even though I was a pro and shooting and definitely, you know, could have picked and choose any place to go to uh to get a free sight, you know, I I ended up buying one of his sights. I actually went to dinner with him. I really loved Steve and his wife Diane and they were great people and I ended up just saying, you know what, I'm just going to buy one. I like you guys. They're awesome. I would rather I would rather support someone that I really like than, you know, shoot something that I don't really really know. And literally that next Tuesday when I got home from that first tournament, I ended up putting it on my bow, I ended up placing at that tournament. Uh, that next week, all of a sudden, next thing you know, here, I've got a couple free sites in the mail, never asked for them, but you know, it was because I had showed an initial loyalty that then the favor was returned and that's how it works. It's given its take, you know, I made a sacrifice, I bought it and then I went out and I performed with it and I had their product on my bow and they knew that I was good and they also knew that I had a small investment. And it's the same thing with TV shows. What's really hurt in the industry is that everyone wants to start a TV show, but yet they don't have the relationship with the company that they're going to and wanting sponsorship for. You know, it's, I just dealt with this a couple weeks ago. You know, I, I do the marketing for Carter. I do you know, I help them with their, I help them with their pro staff and help them with their marketing budget. And I had a show call me, wanted to know if we were going to still sponsor the show. So I, you know, went ahead and started looking at some of the episodes and, you know, here in the first two episodes, the guys have releases on from a different, you know, from a different company and it's tough. I mean, as a manufacturer, it's hard enough. You know, I get asked every single day just for knock on every day. I get asked for something for free every day, at least once. And you have to be able to have value in those people that are asking. And I support the people that I know have already supported knock on. I've got some phenomenal people around me and those are the people that I continue to support because I know that they have a loyalty invested. If you're wanting to start a show, 
go with products that you know you're going to stay with and you like. Get out there, build a build a relationship with the shop, make an investment, invest your time, invest your energy, let the shop owner after time introduce you to the rep, then let the rep help you climb that ladder. You know, I can tell you right now, if your rep goes to Hoyt and says, listen, here's a guy, you know, he shoots, he, he works in the bow rack, um, or he's, you know, he's been a shooter for the bow rack for a long time. He's a great hunter. He's always been a Hoyt guy. Now he's shooting, doing this TV show. It's going really good. Is there anything we can do for him? That's going to go a long way compared to you just saying, hey, I've got a show. What do I need to do to get in? So if you're wanting to to know what it takes, that's what it's going to take. It's going to take you investing right now in the people that are really the grassroots soul to everything. You know, even now as a shooter, a lot of the really good pro shooters, they're still connected to a shop. You know, they still have a direct connection with a local store and I commend them on that. The guys, the people that I see that are top-notch celebrities that are still supporting a shop, amen, because that's those are the, that's the lifeblood of the support to the to the sport and essentially those are the people that are making the sales that equal the marketing dollars. No question. Um, <clears throat> next question I got here is from Thomas. I wants to know which stabilizer um, I use for hunting this year, um, how many and how long. So when it comes to stabilizers, I, rather, I really like to keep things simple. I normally shoot about a 10-inch stabilizer. Right now I'm shooting um, the torch stabilizer um, from Fuse. I actually gave Joe mine. So I've got to get another one, um, but I really like that. It's a cool, cool little, um, cool stabilizer. I personally, the length of my hunting stabilizer, I don't really like a sidebar. When it comes to hunting, I like to keep things really simple, um, so I don't prefer a sidebar. But when it comes to the length, I like to choose a length to where when I, if I'm holding my bow by the string, this is going to sound super simple and like there's no there's not going to be a cool uh accuracy reason for those of you hearing me answer this question so if i'm holding my string and i set my bow down on the ground like i do a hundred times a day if i'm out chasing elk i want my stabilizer long enough to where my sight pins aren't hitting rocks or going into the mud um and i also you know i don't want it too long to where it interferes um but for me about a 10 inch stabilizer um, allows me when i set my bow down it keeps my pins off the rocks and out of the gravel when that happens i'm totally cool and i'll go with it for my hunting bows i'm not particularly picky i like my systems really simple um, less goes wrong. They're easier to manage all the time. Uh, they're a lot easier to shoot from inside of a blind. Uh, you know, if you're pulling it up 
a tree stand. You don't have a long stabilizer hooking on every single branch that you pull it up. So that's my that's my answer. Um, next question here is from Josh Deering. Uh, says, I know you used to shoot shuttle T-lock broadheads, and now you're using the Rage. I've shot shuttles for the last eight years with great results, but I'd like better blood trails. I shot two bucks last year with hypodermics. Really good blood trails, but no pass-throughs. What are your thoughts on both? So these are kind of two of my all-time favorites right here. I love both these uh, heads. And, you know, the question, this is actually like, um, it's actually a, a thing that I've really been getting into with uh, with Joe here too. We've really been kicking around different broadheads and stuff. So, you know, Certain broadheads of any kind are going to have better penetration. Certain broadheads also, I believe, have better um, blade sharpness than others. So these are two of my favorite. Um, I really like these. I like to throw, when it comes to accuracy, a Wacom or a Slick Trick are extremely accurate for uh, fixed blade heads. Um, but when it comes to a mechanical, I can tell you from a mechanical point of view, um, the one broadhead that totally changes my whole mind about, you know, and question about a mechanical head is that hypodermic. I love that thing. It's awesome. Um, it's just bailed me out of a lot of problems. It's, you know, yes. Some some broadheads may have less penetration than others. Hypodermic is I I argue is going to be the best in its class. I really like it. Plus they make a brand new one this year. They should be available here pretty soon too. I think I was going to order some the other day and I saw it said uh, April first. Um, but the new Plus P is actually it has a a better blade angle. And it's an inch and a half cut instead of two inch cut. So you're going to have extra penetration. Um, you know, when it comes to blood trails, it's just, I've shot so many animals. I mean, I'm not, I'm not a big, you know, I, I post when I shoot something, when I'm out on a hunt, I really enjoy it. But, you know, if I added them all up, I mean, it's, it is a huge number, and I can tell you that there's so many variables. There's been times where I've hit, I've hit animals with a broadhead in a spot where I swear, if you were to be asked where you should hit one, you could walk up and touch it with your finger. That's exactly where my arrow went, and it's just like no blood. And then the next time you shoot one in that exact same spot, and there's just blood going all over the place you can hardly even stay you know stay away from it i think there's just a ton of variables <clears throat> i think the internal fat has a lot to do with that too a lot of times that fat tissue can plug things quick um the height obviously you know shooting down versus level um how far that cavity has to fill up before it pumps out i mean i think there's a ton of variables there um, the bottom line is both those heads put stuff down, um, at a distance to where you really aren't having to look very far. Um, 
both of those shoot really, really good. I can tell you when it comes to just sheer penetration and bone blasting power, uh, that shuttle T was extremely deadly. Um, I actually remember I shot a, I shot a deer with one of those one time and it's in an earlier episode of the show. Um, but when I got down, I was like looking at the blood and found my arrow. But then I also, I thought it was a, thought it was blood. And then I thought it was a rock, but I actually realized there was like full chunks of like bone like laying out of the ground that had like come through the opposite side from that shuttle T. It was really, really impressive. But I can tell you from a blood trail point of view, um, you know, having two holes is always going to be better for sure. Um, but I think with a fixed blade, it's not always guaranteed. And the other thing too is, you know, my, my argument, you know, you can have a long argument on mechanicals versus fixed blades, but mine is this. If you hit an animal bad, you want a mechanical. If you hit an animal directly on a shoulder socket or an arm bone, you probably, I mean, if you hit them right on a socket or the main arm bone, you don't want a mechanical. Um, and in my opinion, the knuckle and the arm bone is a much smaller area to hit than the rest, which in my opinion, when it comes to the rest, the mechanical is my, is going to be favored. Um, now if I'm going to hit that arm bone or a knuckle, I definitely would want the fixed blade. If I'm going to hit an animal behind the liver, I would prefer not to have a fixed blade. <coughs> so, you know, I'm just looking at sheer surface area and margin of error. I just think that I have that a mechanical gives me better options for margin of error. Um, I think if you hit something back, having that extra big cut with a mechanical is going to give you a lot of benefits. But also, more importantly, with the mechanical, it is going to fly, guaranteed it will fly better than a fixed blade. Um, it's got less drag. It's going to be affected less by the wind. So... To me, that's where the next thing comes in is, okay, if I'm shooting a fixed blade head, but I'm having to shoot in wind or, you know, I'm having to, to worry about accuracy at 50 yards compared to a mechanical or I can just shoot arrows that are touching at 50 yards. And with broadheads, the faster you go, the more little things come into play. <coughs> I think I would lean towards the mechanical because I would argue that it's actually more accurate with a bigger variance of wind conditions. So, you know, it's, it's one of those things. It's, it'll be a lifelong argument of what is better. Um, I just think for me, if I could only pick one and that was all I could pick, it would be a rage hypodermic 
depending on the animal I was going after, it would be a two inch or a plus P. Um, and that would be it. Um, otherwise I, you know, if I was to pick a fixed blade head, um, from the testing I've done, I really like sharpness in the flight of a muzzy trocar. I like a Wacom, uh, flight is dynamite. I like a slick trick and I like a shuttle T lock. Those are pretty much where it's at. If you ask me, um, the next question here is from Adam Chaffin or Chaffin. Hopefully you're not Chaffin, but let's just call you Chaffin for now. Um, Hey man, I know you're an AAE guy, but what are your thoughts on new Fletch ape tails? It adds weight to the knock in. And I always thought FOC was king, but they are claiming balanced weight is better with more stable flight and better penetration. What's your thoughts? Um, well, kind of wish I didn't read the name to the company because I'm not a, I don't, if I'm going to say something negative, I normally don't like to mention names out of courtesy. So, I apologize, New Fletch, but yeah, weight on the back of the shaft, not preferred. Um, I'll just say the system's cool. Um, I saw the system. I think it's a cool concept when it comes to uh, the serious target archers that are listening to this podcast. Um, I think we're above that. Uh, I think we... I think we can fletch our own arrows, and hopefully, and I think you're going to be way better off having less weight on the back of that shaft. You take something like a new fletch, and then you put on a lighted knock, I mean, a balanced weight is not better. You want to have an FOC that's at least 10%, moving to 15%, and that's going to be the truth. Um, In order to counteract that, much weight on the back of that shaft you're going to have to have an extremely heavy point and in the end you're doing a lot of compensating when you don't really need it so um i hate that i had to call out a brand like that but um cool concept not a fan of functionality um next question here is jason boyle says listen to your podcast and just had a couple more questions about your release elbow i usually okay so that's from the last podcast i usually draw with my elbow down and then raise it into place but recently i tried to start drawing with my elbow up and i can definitely tell it is a little awkward for me at first but i think it's starting to get better i just want to draw with my elbow up for less movement in the stand and was just wondering if I could keep training my muscles to draw straight back with the elbow up. Um, so, and then he's also saying, um, he shoots one type of release during the summer and then another type during the, um, during the hunting season. So does that make sense? Because they're both basically the same shape and size. As long as when you grab that release, as long as the distance from your knuckles to where that loop or the hook um, is, as long as that distance is the same, then it's okay that you try multiple releases because 
essentially your draw length and your anchor and your P pipe are going to be the same. If you lay those two releases and kind of hold them both in your hand simultaneously, if one of the heads is longer than the other, then you need you're going to have to make some adjustments just to answer that second part of your question. Now for the first part, yeah, you're you're starting to do it the right way. You don't want to get in the habit of like drawing your bow back with all of like your biceps and delts. Um, that's what a lot of people do when their elbow is low when they're pulling it down. You want your elbow at least level with your shoulders as you come back because when you move into that position, you're going to actually draw the bow with your back and not with your arm. And it also allows when you come back, it allows you to maintain that control into your back muscles to where essentially once you develop into shooting with a surprise pull through shot, you know, you're going to be using the correct muscles in your back to do that. And you're going to actually have them loaded properly to begin with that way. So, um, you're doing it the right way. You don't want to have your elbow down. And yes, it is a new group of muscles. It's going to feel a little bit different. Um, you know, there's a, I'm trying to think here. Um, I had an article before on draw cycle. Maybe I think I posted that actually. So maybe you read that. Um, but the way you're doing it right now is going to be leading you down the right road, buddy. So with that, I have officially went through three pages of these questions and we're a couple hours into a podcast. So thanks everybody uh, for being patient and letting me have a little bit of a break, a little bit of a vacay. And I'm looking forward to summertime. I'm going to go get my bow rocking and I'm looking forward to uh, dropping some bombs with rogan be pretty fun so uh thanks everybody and hopefully next week uh we're gonna have a pretty funny podcast um hopefully with some decent information in there for you too so thanks everybody for listening appreciate it so much please please spread the word share the love share love with all your buddies all right talk to you later guys Be sure to visit knockonarchery.com to see our entire line of trendy knock-on lifestyle clothing, knockonarchery.com.